Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today I'm very excited to bring you my conversation with Nambi Okike, co-founder and managing partner at 645 Ventures, a firm that uses unique data-driven methodologies to improve sourcing and helps them eliminate the biases that often present themselves when assessing new opportunities. 645 just closed their third fund at 160 million, making them one of the largest underrepresented lead managers in the US. And they focus primarily on seed and series A and have a portfolio that includes breakout companies such as Iterative, Gold Belly, Eden Health, and Squire. In this episode, we had a wide range of chat about the considerations when growing fund sizes dramatically, the power of using a data-driven approach in sourcing, and his lessons as a venture investor over the last decade. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Nabi, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Samir. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get into how you guys think about things at 645, let's go back to your story. When did you become interested in venture? How did this all start? And tell us the journey that led up to launching 645, what, back in 2014? Yeah, so I first got into venture, um, instant venture, when I was in college. So I graduated from Harvard in 2002, and that was kind of the uh, early days of the internet boom, the first kind of internet wave. And when I was in school, I kind of became fascinated by how companies were getting launched and started. So I was in Cambridge at the time, and there was a lot of companies that were kind of being spun out of labs at Harvard, but also at MIT. And I said, I got to figure out how this is working, right? I was just really intrigued by it. I was fascinated by folks kind of, you know, dropping out of school and starting new companies. It was the early days of the internet and e-commerce. And so I said, let me learn about this. And so I went over to MIT and I took, I started, took a class. It was basically a course called New Enterprises. Um, and it was basically all about starting a startup and building a company. And it was taught by a couple of uh, folks, uh, Boston-based uh, VCs. Todd Dagris, who went on to found uh, Spark Capital, was one of the early uh, founders of Battery Ventures. Howard Anderson, who is also co-founder of Battery Ventures. And I started to learn from those guys. And, and I said, wow, you know, these guys have the most interesting job, kind of calling the shots uh, behind the scenes. They're choosing the entrepreneurs. They're, you know, identifying the companies and, and backing them and supporting them. After I took that course, um, I started to say, hey, you know, I want to, want to find a way to get into venture. And I really got a lucky break. So uh, Insight Ventures at the time uh, was starting to build their uh, their analyst program. They were starting to hire folks to basically go out and find companies uh, doing something called outbound deal sourcing. And so, because I'd known a little bit about venture, you know, through the courses I'd taken, I was able to kind of talk my way into this job as an analyst at Insight Ventures. So that was the first job I got out of school. I came to New York and and started in the venture industry. That's awesome. So, okay, so you're at Insider, and I think it's two different stops, right? Both as an associate for a few years, and then as a principal. You know, a lot of a lot of people follow the pattern of working at a big firm, launching their own, but each person has different reasons. And I, I look at your journey, and I say, okay, well, Insight, this amazing firm, thirty billion over assets. You launched six forty five with Aaron and raised a really small fund. What inspired you actually leaving inside and, and starting 645? What did you see? What was unique about the time and you know the, uh, the perspectives the two of you had? So maybe I'll just describe um, my time at Insight, what I learned and how the firm grew and evolved, and then why I believe that you could take some of those learnings and apply them in a new way to early stage. So when I first joined Insight in their early days, Insight was actually a firm doing primarily kind of Series A type rounds. And so Insight typically was the first institutional investor in a business 
um, when we were doing outbound sourcing, we were calling companies and trying to find businesses that might have had a couple million dollars of revenues starting to grow that were bootstrapped. So these companies hadn't raised angel money, they hadn't raised seed, they were really growing, you know, profitable companies. And that model was one that Insight had kind of basically built on from firms like Summit and TA. And so, you know, what Insight was able to do is, is start with that model. So typically writing checks in the you know, eight to $10 million range, kind of first institutional capital, and apply that model across geographies. So beginning with um, investing across the US, many of my early deals were in companies, you know, in smaller cities in the US, uh, Insight eventually started to apply the model internationally. And so over time, what Insight was able to do is take this model and really kind of like grow it and make it a multi-stage approach. And so their fund size grew. So over my eight years there, I think when I joined Insight at the beginning, their fund might have been a couple hundred million. You know, by the time I departed there, they were raising funds that were kind of in the seven, eight billion dollar range. And so what Insight was able to do is to say this outbound sourcing model combined with the value add approach could really scale. And so you could be the first institutional capital, but then you could kind of follow on in those companies, help them to grow, provide a lot of help and resources to them. And you know, Insight's focus on software really kind of enabled them to become domain experts. And that enterprise software focus enabled them to really scale their franchise. And so over that eight years, I think what I learned uh, were a couple of different key elements that really became foundational in, in our firm. I think what the first was this idea that you could actually start to source companies using an outbound model and you could start to move them earlier. So what was fascinating about Insight is that the mechanisms that we use to identify companies, looking at things like web traffic growth or software download growth, or uh, looking at company awards lists or you know, fastest growing companies uh, lists, enabled us to see companies that were relatively early stage businesses, companies that might have a million dollars of revenue, $2 million of revenue that were really fast, nicely growing, you know, very capital efficient, but they may have been outside of the strike zones for top firm, top early stage firms, or they may just not have been even been covered. I started to say, well, couldn't you start to uh, apply an early stage model that used this outbound sourcing approach? Could you also use more advanced analytics and tools? So over the eight years I've been at Insight, there's been this proliferation of data sources, right? There was more and more information on startups that was um, being available to analyze these companies. There were a proliferation of early stage investors, angel investors, uh, there's AngelList, a lot of different sources you could start to analyze and track. The insight initially was around how to identify these companies and then help them um, in the early days. And when I linked up with Aaron, so Aaron and I, it's kind of an interesting story. You know, Aaron started his career as a, well, he's a computer scientist. You know, he um, started his career at Goldman, uh, building advanced trading technology on Wall Street. He went to a firm called GFI Group, um, also kind of building advanced technology. He'd done his MBA at Cornell. And after doing his MBA, he went into the venture business. He worked to work at uh, DFJ Gotham Ventures. And as a computer scientist, he's very kind of systems oriented. And he started to say, wow, you know, VCs invest in technology. You know, they invest in the most advanced um, software out there. But most venture firms don't really use technology in-house. They don't really use software to kind of improve their operations. And as an engineer, he started to say, wow, you know, there's a lot of areas of improvement in the traditional process. And so when we first linked up, we both had started to sketch out um, an idea for a new fund. And we had a, what we call the meeting of the minds. And we said, hey, you know, we're kind of speaking the same language. 
he was talking about how we, how we could use software in a venture fund at the early stage. I was saying, well, I've seen uh, software and analytics being used at the growth stage. I think this can be moved to early stage. And so that's really where we started the firm. You know, our first fund, as you mentioned, was a small proof of concept fund. You know, so when we were starting the firm back in 2014, we were really unproven, you know, early stage investors. You know, we uh, hadn't yet worked together, although we had known each other. We hadn't yet invested together. We were applying a model that was quite contrarian. I think many of the early folks we spoke to, um, prospective LPs said, hey, you know, there's not a lot of data at the, at the early stage. You know, what data you're going to be using? Or, you know, it's all about kind of, you know, when you see it, we had to really prove out that this model could work. So with that being said, you're out there raising the first vehicle, coming from a late stage background, applying some of those methodologies that you learned, but now investing at the early stage with a first time fund and a first time partnership with you and Aaron investing as a duo for, you know, the very first time, at least institutionally. And you're thinking about sizing your fund and you ended up raising eight. Was that the initial target or was it a byproduct of the early discussions that you had? that made it very clear that the demand for such a product would limit how much you could raise. How did you guys think about that? So, you know, when we first um, went out to raise our fund, um, I believe we had a target of $10 million. And as first-time fund managers, you know, we said, look, we don't know what we don't know. We believe we can invest in great companies. And, you know, I had created a warehouse portfolio of angel investments um, that kind of were examples of the types of deals we wanted to get into. Some of them that ended up doing doing quite well and enabled us to prove out this model. But when we started, we really said, look, we want to prove out this model. We're hungry. You know, we're willing to do this. We don't eventually want to build a much bigger franchise, but we know that we have to kind of put in the work and put in the time. And so when we went to raise our first fund, we went to primarily, um, you know, individual investors. And we had some wonderful folks who really became, you know, effectively our angel investors. These were folks like Howard Morgan, you know, co-founder of First Round, um, who was very, very supportive throughout our fund and really educated us about how First Round was built and some of the key elements of their firm, you know, elements such as portfolio construction, you know, how to think about following on. So he became very, very valuable for us as, a, as an LP. You know, Scott Maxwell, who founded OpenView Ventures. Um, Scott was my first boss at, at Insight. He was a wonderful mentor for me throughout my career. Scott was an early believer in our firm and really liked our model and, and kind of supported us through our first, um, you know, all of our funds. You know, we had a lot of folks um, who basically liked our model and liked our approach. And these folks ranged from, you know, investors, as I mentioned, entrepreneurs, folks here in New York, um, in the financial, financial community, also as to African-American, you know, fund managers we wanted to make sure that we had um, LPs that really represented um, the diversity of our firm. Many of our individual um, LPs were very successful African-American investors, financiers, operators, you know, folks like uh, Ken Chenault, former CEO of American Express, or Bill Lewis, who runs uh, banking at Lazard. And these folks really became mentors for us um, and supporters and also, you know, helped us um, expand to institutional capital by our second fund. The, the other question I'd I have around this is now today, you know, if I look at the world today, the, the number of seed funds, as you probably know as well, has grown dramatically. I mean, we're counting 1,500. There's probably more that, you know, we haven't seen. Back then, it was still fairly early days. Data was still, you know, this foreign concept of how do you actually use data in a way that drives real outcomes? Um, we're seeing it much more now. We're certainly seeing people apply data in interesting ways. 
But I had a guest on a few episodes ago, Ashmeet Sindana, who said data is a new oil, but it's also asbestos, meaning that it has great properties, but there are also harmful properties if used incorrectly. So as you were thinking about this, I'm sure you went through and built a methodology. How did you balance that between being over-reliant on data that might be filled with false positives and more backward-looking versus forward-looking? So what I'd seen at Insight was this idea that there were indicators, kind of what what we call predictable performance metrics, um, that could help us identify companies that had a higher probability of success. Now, we call software a prioritization mechanism. So in terms of how we use software, it's not telling us where to invest, how to invest. It's more, we describe it as kind of bringing the aces closer to the top of the deck. We're tracking today tens of thousands of companies in our software. Um, Software is more likely to kind of lead us to the companies that have a chance or a higher probability of being successful. So maybe if I just step back, I'll talk a little bit about what I'd seen at Insight and then how we started to apply our model, right? So as an example, you know, one of the first deals that I did at Insight is a company called DivX Networks, uh, ended up becoming a public company. That company identified through download.com. It was one of the fastest growing uh, downloads at the time. And their software was being pretty rapidly downloaded. This is when in the early days, early days of video software. And so I called the company up and started to learn and get to know the founding team. And I said, this is pretty interesting. We ended up doing due diligence. We led their round. And that company ended up being an IPO for Insight. And that opened my eyes in the early days and saying, wow, you know, some of these metrics, you know, downloads, for example, web traffic was another one. You know, several of Insight's biggest um, online Commerce companies came through web traffic analysis, uh, things like Alexa internet traffic. So those types of metrics were ones that I had always known were interesting and were uh, relevant in terms of a company's performance. Um, But what we started to do when we started our firm was to say, what are all the potential data points that are relevant to a company's success? And we started to categorize those into founder characteristics, traction characteristics, market characteristics. Um, even investor characteristics, right? So today we track thousands of different angels, seed investors, growth investors. It helps us um, to assemble strong syndicates. But to your point, when we began, we really had hypotheses as to which things were most relevant. But what we did not have were conclusions. And we also knew that there was a lot of nuance, right? So Depending upon the specific category, you know, if you're focusing on enterprise SaaS, there's there's certain characteristics that are relevant to success in enterprise SaaS that may be very different than enterprise infrastructure. Um, and so, what we had to do was to start to really assemble information, and we call the information that we assemble analyst data. So, data that's kind of collected by our team as we're talking to founders and learning about businesses. There's also automated data. There's data that can be pulled in through um, a lot of the data sources that I'd mentioned and structured and scored. At the end of the day, the way we look at um, using technology is really, it's an enabler. It enables us to look at more companies, analyze them at greater depth, help those founders. Uh, so a lot of what we do is also identifying ways we can help being helpful to founders using our technology. It could be uh, making it easier to scan our networks and identify potential customers for a business uh, or helping us identify potential hires for a company. And so there's a lot of different elements to it. It's really been an iterative process over the seven years we've been building our firm to really figure out which things are most predictive. 
I would assume that it was it's evolutionary to a certain degree as you have learnings, you discover new things, the world changes. I really like this notion of using it as this outbound because what I do think it does is you discover things that formerly are not discoverable by most venture firms and because they don't fit, you know, the normal characteristics of a founder being well connected. But how do you then make sure that your methodology and your algorithms and your data don't also include so much of your bias that you're also not missing those? When we began the firm, we said, let's keep an open mind as to which things may be most relevant. So as an example, there are certain companies that tend to produce uh, a disproportionate number of you know, billion-dollar founders. And we wrote about some of these concepts in um, a blog we published called The Top Five Myths About Billion-Dollar Companies. So there are certain companies that are kind of tried-and-true places where founders will come out of. These are companies that everybody knows, you know, Google, Facebook, Amazon. But there are other companies that people don't know as much about um, that may produce great founders, right? That may have the ability to produce great founders. And those are founders that you want to be tracking. So as an example, we led a deal in a company called Adea Security. It's a security software company um, headquartered in Detroit, Michigan. Now, Detroit, Michigan isn't the first place that we would think about when we think about security software. But it turns out that Duo Security, which is a very successful security software company in Michigan, which was acquired by Cisco, that business is starting to produce some great founders who are in security. And there's a great security ecosystem in, in Michigan. And so, you know, our outbound sourcing model enabled us to identify Duo as a potential hub of, of new founders and to kind of start to really build relationships there. And so what we started to say was, what are all the different potential elements um, that may be relevant to company exceptionalism? And let's start to track those metrics and learn and le really learn by doing. Um, and also as we're sitting down and getting to know founders, what are some of the more subjective characteristics that are really relevant? We define certain terms. Um, purity motivation is one that we describe, which is a very subjective characteristic, but we talk about it in the sense of like, what's driving this founding team to build something? Why are they doing it? You know, what will they stay the course? You know, what's the underlying kind of founding mentality of these founders? And, and so that purity motivation characteristic is something that we think is very relevant. Um, but it's a question of kind of how do you define that? How do you how do you measure it? Right. And so over the years, what we've been able to start to do is to really learn and kind of learn by doing. And to, to your point, we're very conscious of making sure that we don't have implicit biases in terms of how we source, evaluate, um, or, or make decisions. A good example of one of our approaches is how we track uh, gender and race of founders. And so we purposefully want to make sure we have a portfolio which really represents exceptionalism in all different forms. So we will track to keep ourselves honest what percentage of our deals are uh, female founder run, uh, what percentage of our deals are founded by African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans. That characteristic is something we track, but we don't score it because it's not a plus factor, it's not a negative factor. We want to make sure we keep ourselves honest in terms of that pipeline. So we can look back and say, okay, you know, for the last six months, what percentage of our companies um, that we've been sourcing are, are, are founded by women? And we want to make sure we keep ourselves honest in terms of what that percentage is and making sure it's, 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 it's high. And so that's an example of, you know, some of the ways we try to make sure we're kind of reducing or, or, or trying to eliminate kind of any implicit biases in, in the model. 
you know, something I, I think about a lot is creating something that is systemic, that's repeatable, that's consistent. And a lot of people struggle with that because variables change. And are you getting lucky or do you have something that can replicate fund after fund after fund? Fund one is 8 million. Fund two was 40. Fund three was 4x that. So you went from 8 to 40. So a 5x, then a 4x. And then you look at that and say, well, from an LP perspective, the common conventional thinking is as you move up in fund size and weight class, the muscles that you need to exercise are different. You're competing against different people. Does the methodology that you use that worked at an $8 million fund work at a 40? And does 40 work at 160? Tell us that journey that you went through with those LPs as you went from fund one to fund two and fund two to fund three. How did those go? Like, what were some of the things that you heard as some level of consternation? And how did you get over those concerns? Let me maybe start by maybe describing our evolution in the growth of the firm and some of the key learnings we had. So I described this hypothesis that we had around applying this outbound sourcing model, this data-driven approach at the early stage. And for fund one, you might describe it as being supply constrained in terms of having the capital to prove out the model, right? So an $8 million fund, everybody can do the math. You know, that's a pretty small amount of management fees, right? So, you know, you have to make a lot of sacrifices to kind of make that happen. Um, And Aaron and I really believed in our model. So we said, we're going to do it. We're going to build this firm. And then, you know, we're going to prove this out. So when you're investing in a $8 million fund, the benefit of that is you only really need one or two companies to return your fund. So, you know, we're big believers in this return the fund concept. In the early days, we sat down with Mike Maples uh, from Floodgate. He gave us some wonderful advice around portfolio construction, RTFE, return the fund exit. You know, he kind of, you know, pounded into our heads this idea that, you know, it's all about returning the fund. It's all about, you know, the largest company in your portfolio. And it's really a power law distribution, right? And so we started to apply that in software. Every time we looked at a company, we said, what's the RTFE number? You know, how large does the company need to be to return our fund? And every time we look at a follow-on, we look at that again. And we say, is there a higher probability of this company returning the fund? Is that number changed? What does that look like? And so the benefit of having a small first fund is that if you have $1 billion company, you can return the entire fund. And in our fund one, we have a couple companies that are looking like fund returners that are getting to be pretty large scale. These are companies like Iterable, as an example, which has grown pretty dramatically in the marketing automation space. You know, Eden Health here in, in New York, uh, which has grown very nicely in on-demand healthcare. Goldbelly is another one, um, which has done very well. So we have several companies in Fund 1 that enabled us to really prove that model out. So when we went to market for Fund 2, the, the pitch that we made to LPs was, we've shown that we can get into these companies, right? We've proven that we can get into good companies that can get to scale. We now want to lead the seed rounds. We now want to be the largest check in the seed rounds and really start to set the terms. That was a pitch that LPs liked because we'd shown that we could get into these businesses. And when we were, when LPs were doing due diligence, we said, hey, talk to our founders um, and ask them, you know, if 645 had been able to lead, would you have taken their money as a lead? Most of our founders said, yeah, we would have taken their money as a lead because they've been very helpful. They've done a lot for us. You know, they've been one of our most helpful investors. The aim of fund two is to show that we could lead rounds and to lead, be able to lead seed rounds and kind of be the largest check in those, in those companies. And the way we think about portfolio construction in terms of number of deals, you know, 
Typically in a fund, we'll do between 25 and 30 deals. It's large enough for us to uh, make the numbers work in terms of entry ownership, in terms of returning the fund. So that's what we wanted to prove out in fund two. We've been able to prove that out over the past three years. Now, I think the contrarian aspect of our model is really how we think about series A. And so when we started our firm, one of our core beliefs is that at series A, although there's, there's obviously, you know, a lot of competition, there are more metrics and there's more data to go on. We do believe that there's still a lot of inefficiency at Series A. And I think this is something that's probably pretty contrarian in our approach. I think most, most people believe that at Series A, most of the great companies are kind of known commodities. They're known entities. There aren't many businesses that, are, that, that the big funds are overlooking. One of our core beliefs is that that's not the case. You know, so we did an analysis. We, uh, I described the top five myths about billion billion dollar companies, and what we found is that between thirty and thirty five percent of those billion dollar businesses don't raise from a top firm at Series A. They're either raising from smaller firms, regional firms. Um, in some cases, they may still be being bootstrapped at Series A. And a large percentage of those companies, especially companies in smaller cities, aren't raising from the big name firms. And we'd seen that, you know, over the course of our first two funds, you know, some of our best companies were ones that we'd gotten into at Series A. Um, we couldn't lead those rounds. We were too small to do that. But we started to say, look, you know, we believe we can apply our model at Series A. There's more data to go on. You know, we can track these businesses. We may have overlooked them at seed, uh, but we, we may have a relationship with them to be able to lead selectively via Series A. The argument for Fund 3 is that we could start to really build on that model, continue to do, you know, uh, lead checks at seed. So majority of deals we do um, in fund three are leading seeds, but selectively coming in at series A as well. And that was the rationale for the growth in, in terms of fund size. That totally makes sense in, in terms of the opportunity. I also think about from an LP's perspective, as you increase fund size dramatically, one of the things that LPs look at is you know whether that value that you're providing, or at least the value to check size ratio is staying consistent and whether you can compete effectively at a different weight class where you're competing with different people and you're taking more real estate of the cap table. How did you guys think about constructing the team and constructing your own value add so that that value to check size was consistent or, or even increasing? Or some of the considerations you guys thought of that said, hey, we're comfortable playing at this bigger weight. We're ready for it. We think we're going to be really, really effective in doing so. We believe that's a great opportunity, but it's also a challenge because to your point, as you start to move up in terms of writing larger checks, you're competing against firms that may have, you know, pretty substantial resources, right? Large dedicated teams. We've always thought about how can we help companies in very specific ways um, and how can we utilize both our in-house team as well as our network to do that? So I'll, I'll maybe describe a couple of the elements. Uh, we have a dedicated team we call our success team, which is our value-add operation. That success team focuses on specific areas of help. Customer introductions, so very targeted introductions to prospective customers, which we will typically do in advance of providing a term sheet, really to show um, how we can be helpful. And we use our software to scan our networks um, to figure out the hubs uh, that we can make introductions to in terms of corporate buyers. We are very active in terms of sales and marketing, so helping companies start to build sales and marketing teams, um, both in terms of recruiting, uh, but also in terms of helping them establish what metrics they want to be tracking in terms of their sales and marketing efficiency. And you know, typically our due diligence, and this is this is one of the elements I think that 
derives from this idea that companies have more data. When we're looking at a SaaS company that may have, you know, say, a year, a year's worth of sales uh, information, we can we can start to dig into that data and start to figure out, you know, what's the quality of the customer retention, what's the quality of the early sales and marketing metrics, and start to really help to guide companies to to improve those and to really scale that. We do a lot of work there. You know, we have what we call our connected network. Our connected network is really a group of folks um, who are LPs in our firm who can really help in specific ways. These folks can be helpful in terms of um, introductions to customers. They're also strong operators. So examples include, you know, Greg Pass, former CTO of Twitter, Michael Rubenstein, president of AppNexus, which is a large, very large um, exit here in New York. Kenshin I mentioned, former CEO of American Express. You know, these folks can open doors. Uh, these folks can help with specific operational areas. And so we'll leverage that connected network um, very early to help companies. But we think a lot about efficiency in terms of in terms of value add in that value add really starts with that initial conversation you know uh, we'll prepare for companies what we call a reverse pitch which is really us pitching the founder on why they should take our money and we'll do that to really show all the areas of help um, and founders like that because you know we'll show that value even before we give them a proposal give them a term sheet so those are some of the ways that we really try to kind of punch above our weight class so to speak in terms of um, helping founders and showing that we can help. I think the last element comes from focus in terms of our investment themes. And so we have four core investment themes that we focus on. Um, we drive all of our sourcing within, or almost all of our sourcing within those themes. And so we think a lot about becoming a prepared mind in those investment themes. Um, and that prepared mind enables us to really help those businesses in advance of them even thinking about raising their next round. And I do like the way you go about, you know, pitching founders first and giving them a sense of what type of service model that they should expect as a product, right? Like what type of product you're going to provide outside of traditional capital. You spoke about this connected network, which is your LPs that, of course, sit outside the firm. They're not on payroll. And what I found as a challenge for a lot of managers who have created these really interesting networks is activating those networks to really add value consistently to founders. What have you found that has worked with you and the LPs that you have picked? Because many of the folks that you mentioned assume are really, really busy people and have limited time. So how do you, do, how do you go about it? Yeah, these folks are definitely very busy um, and we wanna make sure we use their time in a discriminating way. And so typically for any individual in our connected network, we're maybe calling on them once, twice, maybe a couple of times a year for a specific ask. As an example, you know, that might be this person has a specific expertise in a vertical. Um, and this person can make a targeted introduction to a corporate buyer who a company or a portfolio company otherwise couldn't get to. Or this person has a specific skill set in an area and maybe they're spending 30 minutes, 45 minutes with a founder educating them about a certain element of company building. You're building and scaling an engineering team or you know, scaling a telesales team, um, as an example. Um, so specific area of domain expertise where they can kind of provide uh, insights. Now, to your point, we want to be thoughtful around how we extend those introductions and how we, um, how we leverage that network. When folks join us as LPs, we're pretty upfront with them and saying, look, we want you to join our connected network. This is how we're going to engage with you. We'll be giving you updates on the portfolio. And it's a little bit of a give-get 
you know, some of these individuals may be interested in joining companies as board members. You know, some of them may be investing as angels individually. They may want to invest alongside our fund. And so those are some of the elements that we try to put together to kind of empower that network. But we try to be very careful about how we leverage them. Before we leave our course segment, I do have a heat check round for you. I want to, I want to zoom out for a second. And, you know, again, we touched on it earlier, the, uh, the changing of the venture landscape to being much more decentralized and having firms of all types and sizes. And you've now become, you know, $160 million, mainly leading seed with some Series A opportunistically. What do you think the future is? Because one of your core beliefs, and, and I agree with, is that a lot of founders out there are undiscovered when they get to that Series A. How do you see the venture world changing in their use of data? And maybe even, you know, smaller firms like seed funds using data whether it be for sourcing or helping their portfolio founders? So we definitely see many firms um, utilizing data in their operations. And there's a lot of firms that we learn from, that we partner with, uh, that we think you know, highly of in terms of, in terms of how they operate. You know, and that ranges from the best firms. So you know, Sequoia, as an example, has a data team and a data operation. They use it primarily at the growth stage, as an example. We've learned from, from them. There are other firms, you know, Signal Fire is an example, EQT, eVentures, uh, that have built strong data operations and, and utilize engineering and, and software in their, in their core businesses. We find that firms use technology different ways. Um, some use it for recruiting and helping their companies to grow and scale, identifying candidates. Some use it for value add. Others use it for sourcing. Um, so it really will range in terms of how firms use it. But we try to learn from everybody. And I think to your point, if we look at when we started seven years ago versus today, there's definitely been more and more firms um, utilizing technology in their operations. We, we view it as an opportunity more than anything, and it's an opportunity to learn from other folks. Going to that last point, it actually leads me to the first question of our heat check round, which is in your time as a VC and all the folks that you've worked with, what's the best piece of advice you've gotten about being a venture capitalist? I think there's a few pieces of advice that I would I would mention. You know, Scott Maxwell, who I mentioned, who's a mentor of mine and of Aaron's. Um, you know, he's been somebody who's been a great advisor, founded OpenView. You know, his advice to us um, was, you know, life's too short, you know, to work with people that you don't love working with. And he gave us this advice um, in the early days, actually, when we were looking at a prospective LP uh, who wanted to invest in our firm as institutional LP. We had some questions around that LP um, in terms of background, you know, some, some ethical, um, you know, questions we had around them. And his advice was, look, you know, life's too short to work with folks that you don't really want to work with. And, and his advice was to really think about whether we wanted to take money from that LP. We chose not to. You know, it was a smart decision for us not to raise from them. But that advice, I think you can apply to a lot of different areas of venture, selecting founders um, who you want to work with there and really want to work with kind of high caliber people um, who you're proud of working with. It, you can also apply that to firm building and, and who you bring, bring on to your team. That's, I think, one piece of advice that, I, that we got early on that kind of has always really stuck. I think I also mentioned, you know, Mike Maples and Floodgate, who is somebody that we really admire. His advice around how to think about exceptionalism um, in founders, I think is something that's really resonated with us you know, exceptionalism in terms of founders who want to build very big companies, but also exceptionalism in terms of kind of how those founders look at the world. We've really taken that to heart as well. As you 
been in the business, and this this is true for anybody that's been in the business for a long time, you're going to miss deals. You you know you see them, you either don't pull the trigger because you didn't see something that was exceptional about the founder or the company or the market, or you just didn't have the conviction to make it for whatever reason. And it, that part is not necessarily as interesting because I know everyone misses. But what's interesting to me is hearing from people that look back at a company that they did miss and understanding what did they actually learn from it. And so I'd be curious from your perspective, it was there a company that you and Aaron or you just missed when in your days at Insight that you look back and say, okay, well, I missed it, which is, happens, but what did you actually learn from it? I'll talk about two from my days at Insight and then also describe um, a couple of learnings that we've had at 645. And this is really, I think, you know, some of these kind of call it what you anti-portfolio uh, moments, I think really inform how we look at the world at 645. So back in my days at Insight as a deal sourcer, as I mentioned, we'd be tracking early stage companies that were growing pretty dramatically. And there were two that always stick in my mind um, as opportunities for learning. Uh, the first was Skype. In the early days of um, you know, Voice over IP, I'd been studying the category. Um, I'd been tracking a bunch of companies and Skype showed up because it had very rapid download growth, um, extremely rapid download growth. This is kind of in the mid 2000s, I believe. And I remember reaching out to one of the earliest investors in the company, starting to get to know Skype. But it was too early for Insight. You know, Insight didn't do early stage investing. They ended up raising several rounds and, you know, the rest was kind of kind of history. Uh, but it was one that I remember saying, wow, this thing is growing pretty dramatically. You know, people are really using the software. Um, there may be something here and in, in, in thinking that that category was going to grow. Uh, the second one, which is most interesting, was was Facebook. You know, I was a Harvard grad, I graduated 2002. And so I had a lot of friends who were um, still at school. This is kind of around 2004. And many of them were on uh, this new thing at the time was called called the Facebook. Without going too much detail here, um, we started to track the business um, and its internet traffic was growing extremely rapidly at the time, as a lot of folks would know. And we could see that through Alexa and, and a bunch of other things. We ended up reaching out to um, Eduardo Saverin at the time, who had been actually applying to work at Insight, interestingly. This is back around 2004. Uh, we had a couple of conversations with Eduardo. Um, I remember pitching the company in one of our deal meetings. And and people saying, well, what's a social network? You know, how is this going to make money? You know, like, what's the business model? And as I mentioned, you know, Insight wasn't doing early stage deals at the time. The company didn't have any revenue. I didn't really know how to explain what I was seeing. And, and I think at the time, I was really just seeing kind of rapid early, early uh, web traffic growth more than anything. And also something that a lot of folks at school and then an increasing number of schools um, like to, to, to use and engage with. But both of those examples, I think, you know, educated me around this idea of like early data is very valuable in determining how popular a product is. And that can be applied to uh, the consumer market, obviously, but also to um, the SMB market um, in a range of different areas. And so I think those things kind of became learnings for me over time in for us at 645 in terms of how we look at the world. You know, in terms of our anti-portfolio at 645, um, I think there's a couple of companies that we think about. There is a business um, here in New York called Big ID. Uh, which is a very successful security software company um, that we saw pretty early. You know, Bold Start, who we think very highly of, introduced us to the company. We we're very impressed by the founder. We like the category. I think we just didn't move fast enough in terms of you know getting into their round. I think it's one that we we definitely regret. Um, but there's there's a few I think different types of companies. Overall, I think the big learning for us is kind of 
when you see evidence of early demand, when you see evidence of uh, folks really liking a product and adopting it, don't look past that evidence. You know, you may not be sure about the market. You may think the market is not big enough, but where that data is ev evidencing, you know, real demand, look very closely and, and pursue it. It's great advice. And uh, getting in early and having conviction is, is tough. Facebook, obviously, uh, a really, really big name. Now, fortunately, it didn't turn into that big of a company. So <laughs> that's the biggest miss I've heard, um, but it happens. Very last question. Now, you're seven years removed from starting 645. We're seeing a lot of new people start, particularly now with underrepresented people looking to start firms. And I think there's much more interest, which is great. What kind of advice would you give to somebody that is starting that may not come from the same circles, may have a contrarian view, how should they think about starting a firm and fundraising? One of the things that I'm most excited about that I've seen in venture over my career, and I've been in the venture industry now for man, almost 20 years, uh, feel old, is that the industry is becoming a lot more inclusive. And you're seeing folks who are starting firms, who are becoming VCs, who are coming from a much broader set of experiences. And those set of experiences may include, they may have worked in an industry that isn't traditionally a feeder for venture, um, or they may have a different type of network geographically. It definitely encompasses this idea that folks of color who are starting more firms are able to, you know, raise early rounds and, and or early funds and really kind of get, get in the game. Um, and that also applies to, to female investors and, and, and funds run by women. I think all those things are very exciting, and it's just wonderful to see the ecosystem broadening. I think the pieces of advice that I would give, you know, one is don't feel that you have to start with a huge amount of money in your first fund, or don't feel like you have to know all the right people to really get in the game, right? I think one thing that was inspirational to us when we looked at a lot of the best seed funds, funds like First Round, Felicis, um, you know, you name it, they all started with pretty small funds. You know, these were folks raising less than $10 million funds when they started. They were being very scrappy. They were being very resourceful. You know, one of my favorite sayings is this idea that necessity is the mother of invention. So when you start with a small fund, the blessing in disguise is this idea that you really can kind of figure out your model. You can kind of tune that model. You can optimize it. And then you can raise a larger fund when that model has really kind of been, been honed. There are a lot of blessings in disguise in terms of starting small, learning. The other thing is, you know, the folks that join you in those early days, you know, they're very committed, right? So one of the best things about starting with a small fund is anybody who joins you, they're not there for the salary. You know, they're not there for, for any kind of bonus they might get. They're there because they believe in the model and they're there for the upside. Figuring out, you know, starting somewhere, getting in the game, having a long view, long-term view. You know, Aaron and I always think about this idea that we want to build a firm that really, you know, creates a lasting legacy. And when we started, we said, hey, you know, we're thinking in, in decades. We're not thinking in years. We're thinking about what's this going to look like in 10 years, 20 years. And so that long view, I think, sustains you and really kind of, you know, enables you to build something that's lasting. You know, so those are the, those are the pieces of advice that I, I would have. And I definitely feel that we're kind of in an exciting time in the venture industry where, you know, you have a wave of really talented folks who maybe look different than the fund managers, you know, of, of old. I agree with you on all, all of those counts. And, and you're 100% correct that a long-term focus should be exercised. And from a capitalistic standpoint, I've always said short-term focus, long-term greedy. I do think that there is 
an opportunity for some of the best fund managers to start off with funds under 10. We've seen in the past, you mentioned a few of them, but it's also folks like DCVC, look at where Kleiner Perkins, Lux Capital, and they started off really small. They proved a concept, they made it repeatable. And now, of course, they're funding companies at much larger amounts. So I'm very excited about the future. I really appreciate you being on the show. Congrats on Fund 3, and uh, certainly looking forward to chart the course with you. It's been a real pleasure, Samir. Really love your show, and it's been great to get to know you over really seven years since we started our firm. And thanks for the wonderful advice and insights you've always provided. And yeah, excited about you know, working together in the future. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Namdi and 645 Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.